there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 69, The Fall of the Gili. Alrighty, so last week I kind of wrapped things up pretty suddenly, didn't I? It was the Second Gili Fangtian War, and the battleground had still to be decided towards the end of October 1924. Central China had been secured for the Gili, and Wu Peifu's military prowess prevented Zhang Zhuolin and the Fangtian clique from breaking into northern China. Hard battles had been fought, and both sides had suffered tens of thousands of casualties in just over a month. Then on October 23rd, Feng Yuzheng, the second most prominent military commander in the Zhili clique, just strolled right into Beijing and took the capital for himself, with the leader of the Zhili, Cao Kun, becoming his prisoner. This incredible betrayal changed the momentum of the war overnight, and what might have been a long and grinding affair was cut short. For Wu and the Zhili, it was obviously a disaster, just as much as it was a blessing for Zhang. But just what was Fang hoping to get out of his massive heel turn? Last week, I touched on Fang's increasing disgruntlement with Cao Kun and Wu Peifu. He and his army hadn't been paid to his satisfaction, which might sound petty, but always remember that the Zhili clique wasn't a ride-or-die best buddy outfit. It was a network of transactional relationships, and Fang felt he wasn't getting his, which was a problem for a high-up warlord as he needed payment from Cao to take care of his army and keep it in the field. Fang's power base gravitated to the west of China proper, especially in the provinces of Shanxi, Gansu, and what is today western Inner Mongolia. Sizable holdings, but a far cry from the way more populated regions to the east. I mentioned also last week that Zhang was sending Fang cash bribes to win him over, and had been trying to detach him from the Zhili since 1923. And this is where Fang showed that ambition I mentioned, because Zhang's intent was for him to become one of his sub-bosses. Fang, though, had resolved to go into business for himself and start his own faction, which would become known as the Guamanjun. Zhang very much was not looking for a new partner in northern China. He wanted to run northern China, so this was probably a vexing turn of events for him, even with the pending collapse of the Zhili. And I should probably touch on Fang personally, as he's actually going to be a player well into the early 30s, so we're going to be hearing from him for a while. Also, he had led an interesting life already up to that point. He had enrolled in the Beiyang Army, created by Yuan Shikai, like so many of his counterparts, but his service was far more mixed. In 1911, he tried to organize a mutiny in the army in favor of the revolution happening, but Yuan hadn't yet made accommodations with the revolutionaries and had Fang thrown in the stockades. Not wanting to waste a talented officer, Yuan would bring him back into service in 1914, and he would be sent south in 1915 to fight local warlords opposed to Yuan. He again intrigued too openly, this time by negotiating with the southern commander facing him, and this time was dismissed from service in 1917. When Zheng Jun attempted to restore the Qing ex-emperor Puyi back to the throne just months later, the army brigade on the scene was Feng's old unit, who indicated they wanted their old commander back. Duan, wanting a quick resolution to the crisis in the aftermath of Yuan's death, restored Feng to his old command in order to secure the brigade's support. Afterwards, he was sent south again, but once more began refusing to fight and made truces with the southern rebels. He would have lost his command again, but Cao Kun intervened as a new benefactor, hoping to secure Feng's allegiance later on. After Duan and the Anhui clique lost their quick war with the Zhili, he switched over to that camp and actually proved a competent commander. 
His forces were decisive in defeating the Fang Tian clique in 1922 during their first war with the Zhili, and Fang established close ties to Cao Kun. This culminated in Cao taking over the presidency with the backing of Fang when Wu Peifu declined to assist in the scheme. By the time of the second war with the Fang Tian, his personal army and ambition had grown enough that he took out Cao and started gunning for national leadership in his own right. If you ever imagined all these warlords to be shifty, plotting souls at their core, Fang was the epitome of that image. He never met a man he wouldn't betray. What's actually funny about Fang, though, is that his sobriquet was the Christian General. Yes, a man with Judas written all over him was actually a professed Christian. He had converted back in 1914, attracted to the moral and anti-materialist aspect of the religion. Because for all his changing allegiances, he was consistent in his leadership. In areas that he controlled, he would work to ban drinking, gambling, prostitution, and drug use. Uh, citizens governed by him were expected to work industriously towards a common good, and as a result, he did pursue some socialist-style policies when he was able. This would later bring him to the attentions of the Soviet Union, who would be a huge benefactor of his once he was working on his own. In his more favorable portrayals, he is remembered as an idealist, who broke from the Zhili ranks and the ranks of everybody else he betrayed over his hatred of their corruption, which was fair. All those warlords were corrupt as hell and in it for themselves. But even if they all deserved what came to them, uh, Fang himself was always sure to look out for number one, too. His stern policies also extended to his army as well. They were tasked with the same moral prescriptions as civilians were, and combined with a focus on discipline, meant the rank and file of his army was among the most solid in China. Underpaid and consequentially not as well equipped as others, but solid. He was also a nationalist, and when I say that I mean he was an admirer of Sun Yat-sen and the KMT. Unlike the other northern warlords who struggled for power without an ideology to back them, Fang actively supported Sun's vision for China. That he actually had an ideology to follow also probably kept him going when he became a target for so many of his counterparts. And while geographical distance kept his faction and the KMT apart at the moment, the day would come when he would link up with them in an alliance. But for now, he was making his big play in the north all on his own, and he was very much in danger. The seizure of the capital and the disappearance of his northern flank was a crippling blow to Wu Peifu, still commanding his army northeast of Tianjin. By October 26, 1924, Wu had repositioned his reserves and incoming soldiers around Tianjin to positions northwest of the city to check Fang's troops coming from Beijing. The smart money would have been to keep the bulk of his troops against Zhang, which was still the far larger threat. But Fang's army was way, way smaller and couldn't get through Wu's defenses outside Tianjin. Understandably, though, Wu was very mad. Uh, one other reason Feng probably betrayed the Zhili was because he and Wu really didn't like each other. Wu had constantly tried to demote Fang within the organization, which, to be fair, was probably a good judgment call on Wu's part. He started rushing in troops to take care of Fang. He probably thought he was in a stable enough position, having seen off the worst Zhang could throw at him, and having received declarations of support from the rest of the Zhili in the aftermath of the coup. Unfortunately for Wu, one of Zhang's underlings smelled blood in the water and launched a headlong attack against the northeastern lines when Wu had left the front. This force was led by Zhang Zhongcheng. Yes, it's another Zhang, but fortunately for us, he has a fun nickname, the Dog Meat General. If Feng was the epitome of a warlord being traitorous, then Zhang Zhongcheng 
epitomized the more roughneck variety of warlord. He grew up in poverty, never receiving any education. He turned to a wandering life of crime that took him all over Manchuria and even Siberia, and operators abandoned up to the 1911 revolution. He acquired a reputation as a competent leader, if also a violent one, and wound up under Zhang Zhuolin in the Fang Tian. He quickly rose to a top command spot, and his forces were notable for containing a unit of white Russian exiles he used as mercenary cavalry. They were reputedly a bunch of drunks with terrible hygiene, but also the best soldiers on any given battlefield in China. He was also the most debauched of the warlords. Upon coming into contact with wealth and power, he abused both. Would assign to a region he would exploit it relentlessly, using the funds either on his army or his own pleasures. His armored train was famous for being exquisitely decorated. Uh, he spent lavishly on clothes, cars, food, and liquor. He kept a massive harem, notable for containing women from all over the world, whom he made to keep miniature flags pinned so he could know what nationality they were. It was his forces that struck out on October 27th and managed to break the Zhili lines west of Qinhuangdao, northeast of Tianjin. The dogmeat general was bolder and more aggressive than any of Wu's subordinates and was able to cut off the northeast Zhili troops from Tianjin. On October 30th, the Feng Tian assaulted the army cut off around Qinhuangdao. The Zhili commanders tried to organize an evacuation by sea, but 20,000 troops at the front saw no way out of their situation and surrendered in mass. Keep in mind that while tens of thousands of troops were always at the front, many, many more were kept in reserve. And with no way to organize an evacuation in time, 100,000 additional Zhili troops opted to surrender without a fight. This was every bit the disaster it sounds like, and on November 3rd, Wu admitted defeat and boarded a ship out of Tianjin and made his way back south, leaving behind the remainder of his troops to Fang and Zhang. The war was effectively over, and while the Zhili clique technically wasn't destroyed, its capacity to function as a group was gone. Wu would flee back to his personal holdings in Hubei and Hunan provinces to rebuild, while Sun Chuan Fang would eventually take over in east-central China, with Fang in the northwest and Zhang in the northeast. Fang, having taken Beijing, had established his own hand-picked government and began trying to absorb as many Zhili units into his army as he could get his hands on. Most of those still stuck in the north, though, went over to Zhang, seeing him as the true victor. Either way, the core of the Zhili's military network dissolved. Individual units that held together were picked over by the bigger parties remaining, and those that fell apart were not reassembled, and those soldiers and officers fled back to their homelands to start anew. The shaky bonds that had held much of China together for the past four years were now gone. This was also the point where the farcical northern government in Beijing lost whatever cohesiveness it had managed to sustain over the past decade, and it too began dissolving. Uh, there would still be a government on paper, but all illusions about its appointees were gone. It would be a tool of whoever was strongest in the capital, nothing more. And by the end of 1924, Fang and Zhang proved unable to come to any long-term settlement for the future. The situation was combustible, to say the least. Fang would claim that he was told by Zhang's envoys before the coup that his intention was to break apart the Zhili clique and return to Manchuria. Fang probably didn't go for that, and I can't imagine he was entirely surprised when Zhang set up camp in Tianjin. The old marshal's intent was to exploit the power vacuum and quickly scoop up Beijing, Shanghai, and as many provinces in between as possible. In capturing these centers of gravity in northern and central China, he'd be in a position where the splintered warlords could start entering his orbit. 
If he was expecting the warlords outside of Manchuria to be cowed after his great victory, though, he was badly mistaken. On November 16th, he sent the dogmeat general south to seize Shandong, promising the governor of that province a lateral move to take over Anhui. The governor there didn't go for it and started digging in by himself, and the aggressive move prompted Feng to dig in himself outside Tianjin. Zheng didn't like this resistance one bit, and didn't feel himself strong enough to conquer northern China unilaterally. So, he approached Feng with a compromise deal to head off a war between them. Still living in the foreign concession of Tianjin was Duan, former leader of the Anhui clique. By this time, the Anhui clique didn't even have a sizable enough remnant to fight any battles, which made him a good figurehead candidate, and both Feng and Zhang were eager to get him on their side. Duan, though, had to play a dangerous game between the two rivals. He still wanted power for himself, despite modestly claiming to have retired to quote-unquote study Buddhism, so he had to play the two against each other while not committing to either of them. Because both wanted Duan's support to create some kind of legitimacy, he at least needed to be listened to. Case in point was the initial understanding between the three. Duan managed to impress both of them not to continue the war southwards, meaning that Zhang wasn't going into central China to chase down Wu and the Zhili remnants, which was great for Duan because he had every intent of letting those remnants coalesce into a viable faction that he could play off against Fang and Zhang. They also discussed how to put the government back together again, but couldn't come to an agreement on that topic. Neither warlord was a capable legalist, and sorting out the corrupt mess that the government and National Assembly had become were well outside their means. Duan might have had the needed ability to sort things out, but he was just as tainted by the corruption that had so plagued Beijing in the first place. Meanwhile, the scattered warlords of central China were all in favor of Duan working out accommodation for everyone. The Zhili might have been beaten, but many of its major components remained with their armies. They couldn't expect to combat the Fengtian and Guomajun in an offensive war, but neither could those groups invade southwards with any confidence. It would be a win-win for everybody just to make peace. To that end, they organized themselves into a kind of council in Nanjing on November 12th, and while they declined to automatically obey Beijing, they were very open to negotiations. There was one Zhili holdout, though, that wanted to keep going, and it was, of course, Wu. He pressed the informal council that now was the time to regroup and strike before Fang and Zhang could cement their alliance. The others were unmoved, and on the 16th, Wu left Nanjing for Wuhan and his home base provinces. From there, he declared that while he was not opposed to an accommodation with Duan's coalescing government, that he was also forming a military government himself to protect the existing constitution that was put in place by Cao Kun. He claimed also to have the support of the other Zhili leaders in central China, which he did not, but he said he did anyway. While those leaders in Nanjing continued talks with Duan, Wu's contradictory and misleading statements created confusion amongst the players in Beijing, just as he intended. The emerging triumvirate were now certain that Wu would sabotage any accommodation made with the Zhili remnants, and so moved to independently create a new government themselves which played into Wu's hands as it cut out the Nanjing leaders and would make them less inclined to go along with Beijing. On November 24th, Duan was declared the chief executive of China. This was kind of, sort of, the equivalent of being president, but the title was seen as a downgrade to reflect his dependence on Fang and Zhang. And neither of them were blind to Duan's machinations to play them. Both began to engage in little songs and dances designed to force Duan's hand. 
Fang decided to go first, and on November 26th, he withdrew his army west in order to, as he claimed, recuperate. He had been making loud noises about retiring, but both Duan and Zhang had demanded he remain at least in charge of his faction, lest he abandon his share of the responsibility for the new equilibrium. Zhang, for his part, started withdrawing his forces back towards Manchuria. Both were creating a deliberate vacuum in Beijing to force Duan to choose which one of the two would become his benefactor, and ergo also his protector. The pressure was also mounting in the north, as by late 1924, Sun Yat-sen's Kuomintang had secured dominance over the southern provinces, and was waging a very effective propaganda war against the bickering factions of north and central China. We are definitely going to be backtracking a bit when we return to the south, but spoilers, soon actually established a stable base of operations. Finally, for once. Anyway, this means that by the end of 1924, Soon was a national figure of real importance, and he was looking to see how he could benefit from the chaos in Beijing. He took a trip up north to discuss the future and arrived on December 4, 1924. Distinct from the warlords, there were thousands waiting in Tianjin to greet his arrival with open acclaim. His arrival in Beijing was even greater as the nationalist members there organized a huge rally to welcome their leader. The big fear for Zhang was Sun making a connection with Feng. And yeah, I know he should be naturally afraid of Sun picking his rival, but remember that Feng had based his Guamanjun army and his entire style of governance after Sun and the KMT. Feng even claimed that he was a follower of Sun's, though again, distance conveniently separated. So Zhang had double reason to be afraid of an alliance against him. Sun and Zhang were the first to meet in December, though, and Zhang's fears were allayed quite a bit as Sun assured him that he was very much not committed to anybody in Beijing. Feng, for his part, was also under no small pressure from inside the Guamanju. He had established his army with the idea that it had functioned like the KMT, based on the ideology of reforming society and stripping out the corruption in China, while organizing with an eye towards development and modernization. His immediate subordinates, though, still held to a warlord mindset. Not being paid enough to placate them was one reason Fang had turned against the Zhili in the first place. And now that he had a national profile, they wanted more. The troops of the Guamanjun might have been more disciplined than most, but the officers still had demands to attend to. He allowed some of his subcommanders to invade Henan province in November and December, as it was Wu's northernmost holding, and ergo a target that wouldn't run totally counter to Duan's demand for fighting to cease, since Wu, after all, was still acting in such a belligerent manner. But Fang's officers hungered for more, and it was only the prospect of the Fang Tian taking all the prizes on the table that kept them together in 1924 and 25. For Duan, though, Sun's arrival was a blessing, as it offered the prospect of hashing out a genuinely national settlement that would see him less dependent on Zhang and Fang. If he could get Sun on board with his government, then he'd have a third partner and a stronger position to court the Nanjing crowd. He gave official recognition for Fang to be the arbiter of the Northwest and Zhang to the Northeast, hoping to separate the two while he convened a conference in Beijing to produce a final settlement. For Duan, though, the conference, which ran from February 1st to April 21st, 1925, didn't produce any results. Fang and Zhang were simply too hostile to each other and both looked to expand their influence into central China by the spring of 1925 through force of arms, disregarding their non-belligerence agreement with Duan. 
For Zhang, the slap fight with the Guomindun in central China was the result of his constant intrusions in the region. He had misstepped in November 1924 by trying to overthrow the governor of Shandong province, and on December 10th made peace with that governor by agreeing that his position would be secure and he wouldn't get shuffled off, he just had to cooperate. This resulted in Fang Tian troops being granted passage through Shandong, and troops started to head south. Their main target was Shanghai, and on December 11th, Duan formally stripped Qi Jiuan of Jiangsu province, and ergo, Shanghai. It's hard to feel bad for Qi, as you will recall from last week, he caused the very crisis that destroyed his own Jili faction by invading Shanghai in the first place. He had ultimately managed to enjoy ownership of the city for a little over two months. Duan did try and smooth things over by offering another posting, but Qi declared independence and began marshalling troops. Uh, that sounds suicidal, but Qi wasn't preparing a strictly military battle, though he couldn't count on the Zhili Remnant Alliance as all his colleagues declined to stand up for. He did have strong support from all the army units in Jiangsu, though, as they did not want a boss who answered to the north. Zhang also had to keep the bulk of his strength ready to meet the Guamanjun at a moment's notice, and so didn't give his southern thrust his full attention. He and Duan had probably assumed that the Jiangsu officers would simply get rid of Qi for them, which sort of happened as Qi was beset by mutiny starting on December 24th. That was all the opening Zhang Zhongcheng, the dogbeat general, needed, and he swooped it on Jiangsu. By January 6th, 1925, he had entered Nanjing, with his white Russian mercenaries shredding Qi's lines. By the 19th, using those mercs as the spearhead, the Fangtian were outside Shanghai. This is where Sun Chuan Fang re-enters the picture. I remember from last episode that he was Qi's ally in the south and had secured Zhejiang and really the whole breakthrough into Shanghai on Qi's behalf. And while Sun Chuan Fang had sent some help to Qi in this case as well, uh, by January 22nd, 1925, he had withdrawn that support and communicated to Duan that if he were given control of central East China, that he could bring the area in line with the Beijing government. This was music to Duan's ears, as now he might have another faction to work with. Qi announced his retirement on the 28th and fled to Japan, turning over all his troops to Sun. The dogmeat general entered Shanghai the next day and immediately had to confront Sun Chuan Feng and his troops. Duan managed to organize an agreement where all soldiers would leave the city and be more or less neutral. Sun honored that bargain on February 5th, but the dogmeat general didn't. The situation was only de-escalated after a Feng Tian military meeting on February 14th, when Zhang Zhulin ordered his forces in Jiangsu to hook westward into Henan province to confront the Guamanjun there. They did so and immediately entered a stalemate with Fang's faction. So, for all their efforts, the Feng Tian managed only to create new enemies in the south and achieved no decisive successes anywhere by early 1925. Life south of the Great Wall was proving to be taxing for the Manchurians. And little did they realize it, but the era of completely unchecked warlord power was starting to come to a close. On May 30th, 1925, there was a protest in the foreign concession of Shanghai over an arrested group of students. The protesters advanced on the foreign-controlled police station, where the cops opened fire in the crowd, killing nine and wounding many more. I'm going to cover this incident in far greater detail in an upcoming episode, but it set off a firestorm across all China as the whole nation protested this latest indignity at the hands of the foreigners. The big winners were the Kuomintang and the communists, as despite their power base being in the south, 
They had members and supporters all across the nation ready to rally the angry masses. Feng even got in on the action, echoing the nationalist sentiments of the KMT and pressing Duan to action. Duan, though, couldn't do a damn thing, and the incident was another clear demonstration of Beijing's impotence. While the warlords did pause to let the protests blow over, the war started back up again after the summer 1925. This time, Feng managed to secure an alliance with Sun Chuan Feng against Zhang and the Feng Tian, and also Wu as well. Despite both being Zhili men, Sun had had a falling out with Wu in August 1925. Feng? Well, Feng was never going to have peace with Wu, so by default Wu became an ally of Zhang's. Sun marched his armies from his bases in Zhejiang, Fujian, and Zhangji provinces on October 17, 1925. He managed to secure Anhui and Jiangsu for himself while the Fang Tian was distracted with the Guomanju. Fang, for his part, scored an upset when he managed to convince one of Zhang's most trusted commanders to defect to his side on November 27th with all of his troops and to start marching on Mukden, capital of Fang Tian. This threw both Zhang and his Japanese patrons into a panic. The Japanese moved troops into Mukden under the pretext of defending their uh, railway interests which curbed the advance as nobody wanted to tangle with the Japanese. This bought Zhang the time needed to swing troops back north and smash his former subordinate's army on December 23, 1925. Zhang had saved himself, but had no small loss of men as he was basically fighting a civil war in his own faction for a moment there. But his opponent was in an even worse way. Feng was feeling pressure as he was once again not bringing in enough money to fully control his army, and was in the process of granting his commanders more autonomy in exchange for not ditching out on it. That was probably a necessary move, as morale was rock bottom after failing to take Mukden, and the officers were in danger of deserting. Feng had managed to seize Beijing and Tianjin while Zhang was distracted elsewhere, but he was, for the moment, a spent force, as his army was unpaid, and had lost the will to fight. This forced Feng to start thinking outside the box. In March 1926, his troops shelled some Japanese vessels in the Yellow Sea around Tianjin, which provoked the great powers into demanding Duan withdraw Fang's troops in the area. Fang's intent had been to force an international incident where the national government would take a unifying anti-foreigner line, but that didn't happen. Fang left the coastal area without additional fuss, but Duan having to cave to foreign pressure yet again pretty much doomed him. Protests against his government broke out in Beijing, and his bodyguard opened fire on the crowds, killing 30. Duan was forced to flee Beijing by Feng, and was forced to finally side with the Feng Tian clique, albeit right at the moment where he completely stopped mattering. Feng had hoped the incident would shift support towards him, but it didn't change the dynamics of warlord politics at all. Feng then decided to do yet another Hail Mary, and freed Cao Kun from his imprisonment in Beijing. Wu Peifu had been, to the last, loyal to his commander, and his release was meant by Feng as a peace gesture. Wu didn't go for it, though, and Cao settled into retirement in Tianjin. Feng abandoned the capital in April and fled northwest, having exhausted his options to hang on there. He would leave his army in a holding position while he himself took a little vacation to the Soviet Union. He'll be back, and next time we see him, he'll have some new friends. Sun Chuan Feng managed to exit the conflict like a bandit, though, securing his gains while making a truce with Zhang and Wu. But for those last two, contentment would again elude the victors. By 1926, Wu only had two provinces to his name, and however well he had rebuilt his armies, he was clearly the junior partner between him and Zhang. 
Zhang, though, could only content himself with fully securing Zhili and Shandong provinces. He dominated northern China, but still couldn't extend his influence south. It didn't help that upon taking the capital in April 1926, both his and Wu's troops sacked the city, and what remained of the government dissolved. Zhang would make appointments, but for all intents and purposes, the Beijing government was defunct. Duan was jettisoned with his remaining supporters going over to Zhang. He retired to Shanghai and passed away in November of that year. Zhang was now in charge in the north, but for all his efforts, was nowhere close to uniting the nation. In fact, the country was pretty well wrecked by this point, and everyone was sick to death of the factional warfare. I imagine you are too, but just imagine having to live through all that pointless squabbling. Just constant warfare, year in, year out. I'll go over the state of the nation in more detail on the eve of the KMT's northern expedition, their campaign to basically purge the warlords of power, but just know that people were done. And good news, something was coming from the south that was going to wreck all these guys. As I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be backtracking since I kind of stopped checking in on them, but the south was not quiet in this time, and in fact was incubating the army and ideology that would dismantle the warlords. Join me next week as we head back down there and pick up with Sun Yat-sen, still struggling to get momentum in that direction going. Good thing for him, the Soviet Union took a very pointed interest in his movement. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.